Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives. We're your host, Maggie Lemire. And Emily Hong. And we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice. Mm-hmm. Our guest for today is Seth Hernandez Ronquillo who's an undocumented immigrant filmmaker, organizer, and impact producer based in L.A. So, Maggie, today we're going to be talking about speaking my truth, organizing, and filmmaking in these times. So pertinent. I'm glad we're talking about this today. So, Emily, why why are you interested in this topic of speaking the truth and... Um, and why it matters right now. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, of course, there is, um, we live in an era of fake news, right? <laughs> Quote, unquote. So I think that's one aspect of the truth. But I think, um, you know, this, this aspect of like speaking my truth, speaking your truth or our truth, is important because, of course, you know, we all know there is no singular truth. But I think through... Um, our personal stories, um, we can really challenge what are the challenging narratives that are out there. And I think, um, you know, right now for me, I think one of the most damaging narratives that we're fighting uh, right now is the way that the U.S. has been talking about immigrants, mm-hmm. right? I mean, of course, that we are a country of mostly immigrants, given the fact that our whole history has been wrapped up in settler colonialism. But of course, that history is not often told. And so, you know, I think it's something that we're constantly needing to challenge and to think about um, not only our history of colonialism and slavery, but also how now folks who, you know, are also descendants of immigrants but don't see themselves as such are then propagating these really harmful narratives mm-hmm. about, you know, what the fact that now suddenly immigrants are no longer welcome. And, and I, it, to me, it's so um, toxic. And I think recently I've just been hearing so much of it that it's really getting to me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you've been feeling like you need to be able to speak up even in your own community when you're hearing stuff that maybe people who think they're progressive even are kind of reproducing harmful narratives and racist narratives. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's, I think one of the challenges because, you know, um, on the one hand, like sometimes in these organizing spaces or even in like faith spaces, um, I found that, there are people who feel like it's especially, you know, I have to admit, I think it is often 
you know, people who, white folks who are, who see themselves as progressive and see themselves as potentially allies, but they feel like they can take up space and really talk about, you know, their own challenges. For example, about, you know, I was at this meeting, we were talking about immigration, um, and there was a woman, a white woman who came up and, and basically was working out her own issues of, about immigration. Um, and in this group of largely immigrants, including myself, and who felt like it was her place to say, oh, I don't really know how I feel about immigration. You know, that we need to think about how all these folks coming over, you know, in reference especially to the caravan, affect those of us who are already here. Um, and so in that, like, it's sort of like my truth in that moment. I, I wasn't sure how to speak up, but I think it's something that I'm trying to work on of, like, how do I try to you know, sit in that discomfort and actually vocalize it. Um, because I think that is so important to do, especially when there's, you know, the, and a lot of it has to do with this construct of legality and illegality, which, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a social construct, right? What is legal, what is illegal, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really big thing that we need to fight in our everyday um, discourse. Absolutely. Yeah, and what you're saying resonates in terms of, you know, why I'm interested in storytelling and filmmaking, which is, and, and why I've been an oral historian um, and always will be an oral historian as long as well as a filmmaker, which is about documenting, you know, history and people's lived experience from the ground up because of the way narrative gets reproduced um, and the way that these stories can feed us and, and show us uh, our past, our present, and our future in a different way. Um, in a really vital and life-giving way, which I know, um, you know, Set is going to speak with us about today, which um, will be really generative. Um, and I guess the other, you know, reason that I'm excited about today is I think I've been thinking a lot um, in recent years, and I don't know if I've moved yet, you know, to conclusions, but about you know, how as filmmakers and storytellers, a lot of the practice is asking people to tell their stories to us and often to tell stories that involve, you know, oppression, injustice, trauma, and are we willing to put ourselves out there and be as vulnerable? Or are we exploring our own stuff through other people? I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, some of all of that, right? But like, why, why shouldn't we be equally as vulnerable in the process or in the stories that we choose to tell about ourselves? And I have so much respect for people who do do that. And, you know, I once um, had the experience of having an abortion and a legal abortion in another country. And, you know, it's such a stigmatized issue, you know. Uh, and I've thought about for years, like, I would like to write about this and out myself, you know, quote, unquote, for this because it, it's bullshit that these kinds of narratives, when they're so common, like one out of every three women has one, but we don't know. But why haven't I done that? And yet I've built a whole practice around asking other people to tell their stories. And so what is the power and what is the healing potentially that we get when we're willing to, to move ourselves and use our stories for action? Um, so, and I think we all have stories. And so I think that's just something really important for us to kind of think about and center as people who work professionally as storytellers. Um, but with all of that said, let's go ahead and introduce Seth. Uh, M, can you read us um, Seth's bio? 
Princess Hernandez Ronquillo is an undocumented immigrant filmmaker and community organizer whose roots come from Bicol, Philippines. Since 2010, SET has been organizing around migrant justice issues such as education equity for undocumented students, deportation defense, and community building with Filipino migrants in Los Angeles. SET's short films have been televised, featured, and awarded in film festivals across the U.S. Their short film, Story of Self, received the Courage Award at the 2018 Disorient Film Festival. Currently, SET is working on projects that explore the criminalization of immigrant communities, as well as the connection between immigrant rights and disability rights. SET is the Impact Videos producer at the California Immigrant Policy Center, and recently served as assistant editor and impact producer for PJ Raval's documentary, Herganda, which we featured on a previous episode of this podcast. Set is a 2018 Firelight Impact Producer Fellow, 2017 Soros Justice Fellow, and 2016 Atlanta Edge Fellow. But above all, Set is the fruit of their parents' sacrifices, their siblings' resilience, and their community's nurturing. I love that last line. Welcome to the show, Set. Thank you so much for having me, Maggie and Emily. I'm so humbled to be here. We're so grateful for you being here. So let's jump right in. Why don't you tell us about um, how you came into filmmaking and storytelling? Oh, what a packed question. When I was (laughs) younger, um, I grew up uh, wanting to be an animator. Um, I really loved drawing And growing up in the Philippines when a lot of anime shows would be um, always running on the TV. But then I realized that actually I can't draw that well. So um, I just always had this orientation towards storytelling um, and storytelling through visual means like film and TV and media. So when I ended up in film school, um, I definitely wanted to be able to explore more about you know, the ways that um, uh, my community is represented in media. And I think when I first learned that I was undocumented, I didn't even know the words to what that experience meant. In other words, mm-hmm. when I learned that I was undocumented, I didn't even know the word undocumented exists because I literally thought that I was the only person in the entire United States who didn't have a social security number because the way that undocumentedness, I guess, kind of came into my life. Uh, Primarily, this was like in the late 2000s. There was not a lot of conversation within the Filipino community um, from which I was coming from about that experience of being undocumented in the way that I understand it now. And also, I think just because of the way the mainstream media really portrayed what it means to be an undocumented immigrant in the U.S. primarily, although we know that undocumentedness exists just beyond the borders you know, of the United States. So I think for me, wanting to tell stories comes from this desire to be able to tell the stories of people like myself, like my family, like my ancestors, You know, people from the community that I live in, people that I see every day, people whose stories are often invisibilized by the way that mainstream media kind of portrays our experiences. 
invisibilized not just by not representing us at all, but also by misrepresenting us, you know, showing us a certain way when really our realities and our experiences are much more nuanced than they really are. Um, unfortunately, though, when I was in film school, the experience that I had was very not positive, <laughs> for lack of better words. Um, mm -hmm. And I think for me, the way that filmmaking was introduced to me came through this lens of very corporate studio system. And as a person that grew up in a working class family, you know, coming from an immigrant family, a lot of it just didn't really make sense to me, you know, and a lot of it just didn't feel right to me, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing so many folks in my community um, that are experiencing, um, you know, struggles, you know, that often folks that go into the film industry um, don't often experience themselves directly, right? So I think for me, you know, for a while, I kind of veered away from filmmaking just because that was my understanding of how the whole system was um, and started to focus more on community organizing. Um, and I think around that time is when I realized, you know, how can I bring my the, these two worlds together so that I can put my storytelling practice and my organizing practice into one kind of unified effort in the way that I move about in movement spaces. Super uh, interesting. And it's, um, it's interesting. I think both Emily and I, you know, what we all have very different backgrounds have also grappled with how do we bring both our sort of um, social justice work and our desire to explore and tell stories together and how do we do it in this industry which is why I think this podcast exists frankly and, and also just realizing like the, the potency and power of media you know I think we assume it's for good but it's not always at all and I think that's why it's so important that this industry becomes you know so much um, more inclusive but Seth, you said that uh, your experiences in film school were uh difficult and disappointing and um i think you know probably most filmmakers have moments in their journey where they're like fuck this i don't know if i want to keep doing this this is hard like and it i don't know if this is my space so it sounds like you had some real moments like that yeah you know to get to college um when i was in my younger days i guess you know, as an undocumented person back then when I first finished high school, being able to go to college was not always accessible for me, especially back then in the state of California. Now there are provisions like the California Dream Act that allows some undocumented students to be able to access financial aid. But when I was finishing from high school in 2010, being able to go to college, I did not qualify for financial aid. I didn't even qualify for scholarships, you know, because I didn't have a social security number. For, for scholarships that were open to undocumented students, I did not qualify for them because I was um, of a particular background. A lot of them were open mostly to Latinx um, undocumented students. But as a person that is not from Latin America, I automatically didn't qualify for them also. So there was just a lot of these barriers that kind of existed for me as an undocumented student that I, that I thought that being able to go to college was not going to be feasible at all. So for me, you know, that access to education was really something meaningful. And then going to film school with mostly white faculty, you know, that's kind of... One of them even asked me, you know, how are you here kind of situation in a very interrogating way, you wow. know, questioning my existence in the institution as an undocumented student. 
Um, and also being, you know, asked by like other folks in the space about, you know, the stories that I tell. You know, one of my first projects was about my family's undocumented experience when we were kind of not talking about being undocumented um, and me being curious about what all of this really meant for my family. And someone in the film school asked me, you know, what's so important about your family that you would make a film about them, you know? And I feel like just this constant sense of being feeling um, uh, maybe made to feel less or less worthy to be in these quote unquote elite institutions, you know. I think, I think also part of it is because I was not as politicized and not as resilient when I was younger. You know, feeling like this institution would validate me. In hindsight, you know, I think was not the best way to think about it, which I think added to the to the stress, you know, and to the disappointedness that I experienced that time, you know. But I think, you know, as I move forward with my journey and now being in this moment in my life, I think, you know, you know, I pulled through, y'all, you know, through the fire. And <laughs> yeah, the you rain, did. You know, she is here. So I'm really um, just, you know, humbled to have had, you know, the ways that my community, my loved ones have, you know, shown up. And also, I just want to share um, that the reason I am who I am today is not because, you know, I'm like some kind of like person of a certain way. I really believe that, you know, it's community, it's ancestors, it's loved ones that really have paved paths for myself and for other um, undocumented immigrants who are in this position that I'm in. Um, and how can we continue to pay forward and pave, you know, such so that it's not just a few undocumented immigrants that are able to move about in the world in a certain way, but, you know, all of us, you know, regardless of our class, immigration status, our background would be able to access, have access to the opportunities that we all deserve. Absolutely. And I wanted to follow up on um, you, something you said about sort of in high school when you kind of were in this moment where you first learn the word undocumented, and I know that, um, you know, you got at, at some point, I don't know whether it was in high school or, or later in college, that you got, you know, pretty involved in organizing. So I guess I'm wondering, how did you get from sort of um, being in a place where, you know, you were uh, finding out about your, your own family status and then sort of to the point where you became, um, you know, as you mentioned, politicized or maybe connected with other folks um, and, and to get involved sort of in, in the organizing space in immigrant rights work? You know what? That's such a funny question, Emily. I, have, I just thought about that again right now as you were asking the question, you know, to be this person who didn't even know they were undocumented <laughs> when they first learned their status to now being, you know, doing um, work within migrant justice movement. You know, I think a lot about um, X-Men. <laughs> um, I always tell the story, you know, I don't know if you all remembered that first X-Men movie in the early 2000s where um, Rogue, played by Anna Paquin, you know, she, um, in the movie, she touches her boyfriend or her partner and, you know, she starts kissing him and then all of a sudden he, like, passes out 
and like almost dies literally. And that's when Rogue kind of realizes that she has this power that when she touches people, she sucks up their power and their energy. So she's like, oh my gosh, I'm a freak, you know, and she runs away because she thought that she's this only freak or mutant in this community that she lives in. She runs away and then bumps into um, someone driving a truck in the middle of a snowy nowhere, you know, and it turns out to be Logan or Wolverine. And then Logan, Wolverine, and um, Rogue um, continue their journey, and they end up in Professor X's um, School for the Gifted. Um, and that's where they meet all these other, you know, teenage mutants, I guess, you know, who are like, have these super amazing superpowers. And also, we're kind of doing their own work to fight for what can be perceived as some sort of mutant justice in the world that they were living in. And I think for me, that's kind of how, I guess, like kind of like Rogue, kind of like um, Anna Paquin's character in that X-Men movie, that's kind of how I think about my journey, you know, to mm-hmm. kind of feel that you're the only mutant, you know, in this world <laughs> who didn't have a social security number. And then um, to bump into that one Wolverine, you know, that is kind of what happened to me too. I bumped into a mentor of mine who continued to be a good friend and mentor to this day. Um, and they invited me to this undocumented student welcome day um, in the college that I was about to go to. And there, you know, for the first time in my life, I met other 30 undocumented people. And I was like, from no, from thinking that I was the only one in the entire universe who was undocumented, to then seeing, oh my gosh, you know, there's like these undocumented students who are finishing school, who are graduating, who are now like trying to live life after having graduated from school, you know, continuing to be in this institution. You know, it was just such a, um, uh, an eye-opening experience, you know. And then to know that you're not alone and that these same people, you know, were fighting for something more than just themselves, more than just their access to higher education, but also how can we improve the situation and how can we fight for dignity and, you know, a just way of living our lives in this country and in this society in a way that is collective through organizing. And I think that's kind of how I found that journey from feeling alone to meeting that one person who then connected me to this entire universe of other undocumented superheroes. That's beautiful. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great metaphor. And um, it's also really uh, like potent, again, thinking about how stories connect us and give us currency and power. And it's not just the stories of, of now, but you know the stories of, as you mentioned, our ancestors and those who've come before us and, and having that perspective. Um, so again, sort of that question around um, what stories are we able to hear and to tell? Um, and, and I think within your own journey, you know, discovering this power that you have and then also the power to tell stories, you've, you've really embraced your story. Um, and I know you have a short film that's doing the festival circuit right now called Story of Self. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, so um, <laughs> Story of Self kind of emerged. This was actually my second um, piece that I made. The first one that I made was called Us, U.S., um, and it, that, that first project that I made was about my family's um, immigrant experience. But then when I look at that piece now, you know, I felt like that kind of was this idealized idea of what the American dream 
could have meant for my immigrant family, for my undocumented family. But I feel like at this point in my life, you know, I'm questioning that framing that I kind of made for the first piece that I developed. And I think, you know, it was an important learning moment for me. So when uh, in 2015, 2016, um, you know, I was at this really difficult moment in my personal journey. I was organizing for what was known as um, administrative relief or what would become the policy um, DAPA or extension of DACA, the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. In 2014, Obama announced um, this extension to the DACA program that would um, support um, older undocumented immigrants and also an expansion for DACA for others that didn't qualify. Um, and I was very much involved in that campaign. But at the end of the day, my family, my own parents, did not qualify for the policy that Obama announced because, you know, for that to qualify, an immigrant adult, an undocumented adult, must have a U.S. citizen child or U.S. resident child to be able to qualify. And my, uh, my entire family is um, undocumented. So I was like, you know, what am I doing? You know, I'm fighting and spending all this energy for a policy that even my family and my own loved ones wouldn't qualify for. So I was like, what's the point of all of this? And it was just really, like, this really, really um, difficult, but also eye-opening experience that I had this idealized vision of what the U.S. means, of what America, you know, is supposed to be. But it's really enigmatic, you know, and it's really just an illusion. I think that I was making myself believe that didn't really exist. So when I was sort of grappling through that experience, um, that's kind of when I developed um, Story of Self, which in some ways is kind of like uh, a sequel. Some uh, friends have told me that they're kind of related to us, you know, the uh, us and Story of Self are kind of related to each other, but just very different uh, ways of thinking about the U.S. So Story of Self, it's kind of my own journey about my own understanding of what this whole undocumented experience has meant for my family. You know, like learning that family separation is not something that just happened this year under the Trump administration, but that family separation has been going on even under the Obama administration, President Obama, who has deported the most. Um, immigrants, I, I still believe to this day, I think that's still the statistics that Obama deported the most um, immigrants, you know, in the history of the U.S. Uh, of any administration. And that, you know, this fight to stop the separation of families, to stop the incarceration of immigrant families and refugees, you know, in detention centers, you know, um, is a fight that immigrant rights organizers, migrant justice leaders have been fighting for you know, not just in 2016 when Trump got elected, but even before that and even before Obama. Mm -hmm. And I think Story of Self kind of came at this point of really realizing that, you know, what we're fighting for is much more nuanced, you know, but sometimes, even though we don't know what we're fighting for, you know, sometimes that's the only choice that we have as people who are just trying to survive, you know, and hopefully in that process, we also find a way to survive. Totally. And, and what's the experience been like, you know, for you of, um, of sharing your story and, and also the, for your family? I imagine yeah. that's a, 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 potentially a conversation that you're having with them. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I think, you know, for me, um, these pieces that I make, although they're about myself, you know, they really are about my family. And I think sometimes when you think about stories of individuals, we kind of think about this very, you know, single person mindset, you know, that this is about this one person. But really, we're all part of a community and a family and a network of people that's beyond ourselves. And whenever we tell our story, we also kind of indirectly, or maybe directly, tell the stories of those around us. And I think when I first made that first film that's more directly about my family, it was really um, a very unique experience because that was the first time, I think, that we really started talking more about what it meant to be undocumented. Because I had no idea what my family thought about what it meant for us to have no social security number in this country. And I think it was this big elephant in the room that we kind of always acknowledged but never really talked about and named even. And uh, being able to finally have words to speak about that experience and to finally hear, you know, and acknowledge, you know, that, wow, you know, this is what you're feeling about this. This is how I'm feeling about this. I think for me, to a certain extent, it was kind of like a healing experience mm-hmm. um, to be able to finally realize that um, there's a very important aspect of the storytelling experience, you know, being able to acknowledge each other's presence, you know, and just, you know, seeing and hearing each other out. I think it's kind of what this whole experience has meant for me, at least, you know, and maybe I should ask my family before, you know, I speak about how they really experience it. But I think for us, you know, we've we've seen the pieces together. Um, and uh, actually, my younger sibling told me that one time when we were watching the film together in a film festival, um, my younger sibling was like, oh, you know, our older sibling kind of, you know, like was crying a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, that's sweet. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, I think it's really just humbling to have you know, been able to share this journey with my family. Yeah, I think um, we, in an earlier episode, we um, we mentioned, we had a shout out to Minding the Gap. I don't know if it's a film that you've seen, but um, it's, an, it's a film by Binglu, and it's a, also a very personal story. And I think, um, you know, for me, it, it, I think it really showed the power of film as the, as potential for for healing and I guess I'm curious for you I mean do you think that um, there's something about the film medium specifically um, that has the potential to you know have that healing aspect or do you think that it's very particular to or is it you know it has to have to do with storytelling in general um, it, you know, I guess I'm just wondering your thoughts on that, or do you think there are also potentially limitations for thinking about film as a vehicle for healing? In terms of its healing properties, I guess, for lack of better words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, the herbology of filmmaking. Um, I think, you know, film can be whatever you, it's a tool, right? And it can be whatever you use it for. You know, it can be poison, it can be medicinal, you know, it can be toxic, it can be healing, right? Because I feel like a lot of mainstream...
the reason I started pivoting more towards filmmaking and um, and intersecting it with the organizing practice that I've been doing is because in my early young adult career, I guess, um, I was working as a communications person for this organization, and I realized that a lot of the work that I was doing as a communications person is, is for lack of better words, I felt like I was always pimping out my community stories to mainstream media, you know, so that they can amplify my community story, you know, and whatever that would take, you know, we're going to do it so that our community can, you know, so that, quote unquote, our community can be heard, I guess, you know, voiceless people being given a voice, right, as a lot of people say. You know, so always, you know, these journalists, you know, these researchers, you know, these um, filmmakers would always come to us. And even when I was an undocumented student, there was always researchers that were trying to research my experience as an undocumented student. You know, and we were like the sexy thing, you know, to be commo- mm. to be commodified, you know, and like really um, research and to be interviewed and to be asked questions, you know. And when I first started actually in storytelling, you know, on top of my experience in film school, I think this is why I was really turned off by this whole um, storytelling uh, practice is because I saw how dangerous and how harmful and toxic it could be and how much it can exploit, you know, people, you know, who are often left vulnerable and left powerless, you know, and maybe to a certain extent even um, exploited by a lot of people who claim to say that they have good intentions, right? Um, So I think, you know, um, that can definitely be one side of storytelling. But I think how can we reclaim that? Right, because I think also for me growing up, I didn't really have grandparents um, because um, you know I'm an immigrant <laughs> in this country and it's just my immediate family here. And something that I remember a lot is my mom always telling me about her father, you know, who she really liked, loved a lot. And I think for my mom, you know, even though I never met my 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 maternal grandfather, you know, like I almost feel like I met him by the way that my mom tells stories about him. And my mom also has this really, really great skill for making photo albums when I was younger. So to this day, I still know what I look like when I was younger. You know, and a lot of the the archival pictures that I use in my pieces um, with uh, with my family's, um, you know, photos when we were in the Philippines is all because of my mom's amazing documentarian skills. You know, and I think in so many ways, you know, that kind of represents what the best of filmmaking can be. You know, it can be a way to remember the past, to remember a lot of the the healing properties, right, of filmmaking, and a lot of also this opportunity to really speak your truth in a way that is authentic and in a way that makes you feel heard the way you want to be heard. Mm-hmm. And I think what you just um, were speaking of speaks to the fact that when we're connected to our stories, we, again, have like this deeper perspective. You know, people say this is the worst it's ever been under Trump. Right. Um, We're speaking about this recently. But, you know, the generations that have come before us have gone through, you know, uh, war and imperialism and all of these other, um, you know, segregation, slavery, so many incredible um, incredibly difficult times and that resilience um, is built into us. I actually heard a study about sort of intergenerational trauma and one of the most interesting findings was that it's, of course, yes, that trauma is there, but the resilience is actually there just as strongly. 
Um, and, and those stories actually build that into us, which I, th- I think is something you're also pretty passionate about in terms of why we tell our stories. Yeah, I think, you know, when we tell our stories, um, I think especially with the, within the, the realm of documentary, I think um, to a certain extent there's almost like this really interesting dynamic within time, you know, temporal dynamic within the craft of nonfiction storytelling, because I think often we're telling stories about the past, right? And we're doing it in the present. And I think sometimes really the main people that would experience this documentation of the past are people that are in the future, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, generations in the future who will have a certain point of view of who the people in the past were because of the way that people in the present are crafting stories about these people, you know, whether it's stories of resilience or sometimes whether it's stories of, you know, brainwashing almost or of propaganda, you know, to talk about a certain group of people a certain way, you know, it's like this, you know, you know, that saying that, you know, um, the winners write, history or something like that mm-hmm. um i feel like sometimes you know that that can't always be the case you know because even people that are experiencing defeat you know there's got to be a way for us to find a way to speak our truth because people in power people in the mainstream can't just be the ones to tell the future about what our reality really is yes and that's why i think you know as far as maybe Emily and I think about feminist filmmaking, it's such a process. Um, and it's, it is about the impact of that process in the moment on each of us and the people who are around us, like our loved ones, as you said, but it's also knowing that these stories will travel in ways that we can't see and know. Yeah. And that's part of the uh-huh. beauty of it actually. Right? For sure. Definitely. So um, with that, let's take a quick break. You're listening to uh, Bad Feminist Making Films on Full Service Radio. Welcome back to Bad Feminist Making Films on Full Service Radio, presented by Riza and Ethnostune Collectives. Um, we're here uh, with Maggie, Emily, and Set talking about the power of speaking your truth in these challenging times. And so... Well, I thought now would be a great time, um, to Set, to see if you might be willing to read a poem for us. We, we actually, we, we have not had the chance to have any poetry so far yet in our podcast, but, um, you know, I think it would be a really great opportunity to show all of your artistic sides and how powerful of a storyteller you are in more than one medium. Um, so would you read your poem for us, Shattered Glass? You are so generous with your words, Emily. Thank you so much um, for inviting me to share this piece a little bit. Um, I wrote this poem, um, I think, when I was sort of navigating, you know, the gravity of 
what the 2016 election kind of meant for um, the undocumented community, and particularly for people that I deeply, deeply care about. I think when I... I've never really had a lot of faith in electoral politics, but for some reason, you know, I kind of felt a certain way on the night of, you know, that November day in 2016. So I think when I was, you know, navigating that experience, it kind of ended up into this poem. Um, And I think also this poem doesn't just really talk about that um, experience um, from the election, but I think also it kind of even stemmed from the fact that, you know, my family, you know, that I have, you know, been organizing around, you know, and organizing for, didn't qualify for a lot of the policies that I didn't, um, that I was organizing for. And I think being able to really grasp, you know, that this idealized vision that I have of this country isn't really true, I think kind of manifested itself into this poem. And this poem is called Shattered Glass. And it goes something like this. You raised me to adore you, to bow my head and uplift you. You stole my voice and my words. You made sure I wasn't heard. I couldn't take a stand, so you walked all over me. I couldn't speak my truth, so you told lies about me. But now I've learned to sing aloud a beat complete and sweet. I've come to stand on solid ground. My feet resist defeat. You left me shattered, you left me broken, but my strength remains unshaken. You left me falling, you left me dying, but my spirit keeps resisting. Like shattered glass, I lacerate. Like falling rain, I inundate. Like broken cords, I resonate. Up from the dying embers, I liberate. Mm. Wow, Seth. Thank you so much um, for sharing that powerful poem with us. And, yeah, I love that line about, well, I love all the lines, (laughs) but I especially love the line about, like broken chords, I resonate. Um, And sort of this transformation from shattered glass to then from that, how do we move to doing the work of liberation and what that looks like in each of our practices. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I think, and, you know, something you mentioned when you were introducing the poem about um, basically the lies about this country that, we, that, that we're told growing up and, and that, you know, in some ways we continue to tell ourselves um, and each other. And, you know, I, I, like, I look back to and think about sort of why, how is it that even today we sort of tell the story about the U.S. being such a great place, um, I think, and maybe it's particularly at this political moment that it's such a, it's such a incredible disjunct from reality that I think it's hard to, um, imagine how that story keeps getting repeated. Um, and I know that, you know, I saw, um, I saw, uh, something that a, a, an immigrant, immigration lawyer who has been, 
um, working along the border with the caravan um, bring up sort of, you know, the really heartbreaking dissonance between the fact that there are at this moment, right, so many refugees on the border and they, you know, they're not, it, it's, it's a complicated aspect of on the one hand, they're, they're, they have heard these stories, right, about America, about the U.S. being a place where they, you know, they might be welcome and they would be able to have a life free from persecution and torture and all these different things that they're facing. Um, but I think, you know, hearing some of those stories, I think it's just really heartbreaking how much of a disconnect it is with a lot of the other anti-immigrant um, hate-filled speech that has been going around, um, not just in the news, but, you know, in my own community, to be honest. So, yeah, I don't know um, if, if, you know, you wrote that poem at this moment of the election. I think now is another sort of critical point where, um, you know, we have this border potentially being a border wall being put up for billions of dollars, right? So I guess kind of reflecting on that poem and and what's happening right now at the border and all these policies that Trump is, you know, proposing, the wall, all these things, I guess, um, what are some thoughts that you might share with us? Oh, that is a very, very... um, Packed question. Um, I think, um, yeah, I feel like to a certain extent, you know, there's this American mythology that people within the U.S. believes about itself, you know, and people then kind of propagate that message to the rest of the world. I think I remember um, um, hearing someone from the Philippines say, that, you know, the U.S., um, the way that the U.S. think of itself positively is about, like, 89% of Americans or something like that in the 80% percentage um, view the U.S. as a country very positively. In the Philippines, the percentage of people who view the U.S. uh, positively is actually over 90%. So more people in the Philippines view the U.S. positively than even people who live within the U.S., right? Mm. So I think, you know, that is just such a what kind of, like, moment for Mm -hmm. me when I heard someone say that. And, uh, you know, um, how do we um, reframe reframe the way we think about, you know, these Western powers, about these empires, you know? And also, how do we uh, re-empower ourselves and our own communities to see and view our lived experiences and our community's resilience in a different way, you know, and that we don't need a savior to save us, but, you know, what we need is each other, you know, and what we need is this interdependence, you know, within ourselves. Of course, you know, um, Western powers will always be kind of, um, and people that are in like higher up um, positions will always be finding ways to, um, attack our communities, right? So h- how do we fight back in ways that depend on ourselves and not always, you know, looking outside and being able to really own that empowerment that we have within ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are such 
interesting and, and thoughtful and important points. Um, and also to me speak to the need of, of really this, this title of speaking the truth and the truth being much more nuanced, complex stories. Mm-hmm, yeah. And histories, even of our own experiences um, and our community's experiences, as Emily was just saying about even in her own community, um, what she's experiencing. And so I think like that, you know, not to say the truth necessarily will set you free just to be really cheesy, but um, that it, something I find really frustrating often is, you know, in, in many different spaces, people are really interested in, in telling a narrative to make a point, but not to necessarily explore the, the truth and the nuance and all of the experience. And I feel like to really change things, we really have to grapple with things in a real way. Um, so, uh, but about changing things, um, we know you've been part of Firelight uh, Media's um, kind of pro- impact producing lab. Um, and I'm kind of curious about how you're thinking about, you know, this connection between filmmaking and and social impact and sort of what that looks like or means to you, you know, within this journey that you're on. Yeah. um, I think, you know, when I first um, started to think more intentionally about films, you know, there's always like this thing, you know, the power of film, quote unquote. (laughs) And I think that's a really... Um, narrow-minded way. Of course, films are powerful, but I think films within themselves, you know, does not kind of wield all the power, you know? I mean, a sword can be sharp, but if it's just a sword sitting on the floor, what is that sharpness good for, right? So, you know, someone needs to wield that sword, right? So then I feel like, you know, that's kind of um, the way I think about impact producing, you know, because I think sometimes there is this um, way that filmmakers think about the work that they're doing, you know, as if this film that they're going to make is going to solve the problem that they're talking about, you know, and then they're going to get accolades in the process mm-hmm. of making that happen, right? And I think, you know, how do we reframe that way of thinking about um, social justice storytelling and, you know, social issues, um, documentary filmmaking, um, and really make filmmakers realize that, you know, your film needs to build upon the work of organizers and leaders and ancestors who have been fighting against injustice even before you thought about making this film, right? And how do we make sure that your film, when it becomes the amazing film that it becomes, how can we make sure that that is a tool that can be helpful for people that have been doing work on the ground? And I think that's kind of like where the impact producer, this nascent field of impact producing, you know, kind of comes nascent in relation to documentary filmmaking, you know, um, and how long documentary filmmaking has been around. Um, and I think, you know, for, um, for an impact producer, sometimes the way I think about the work that impact producers do, although I myself, you know, I'm not an expert in this realm yet, you know, I still am very much a student of amazing, brilliant leaders like Sonia Childress, you know, who is with Firelight Media, who is pretty much guiding this um, program and also is one of the, I guess, godmothers of this field. Um, You know, the way I think about it sometimes is um, an impact producer is pretty much an organizer that kind of brings together the film and the community into this point of convergence. Um, And then, you know, making sure that this film, in this powerful film that, you know, comes out of the mind of the director and the producers, becomes then a useful tool for the movement work that organizers have been doing 
ground. I love that definition, and I don't think that I think you're very, way too humble <laughs> because I think you know. Of course, there are we you know we need to appreciate all the folks that have you know set the ground for this field. But I think there's so much that you bring to this field in terms of your experience, you know, from doing civil disobedience to fighting family separation to you know really finding the the ways that. Um, you know, your story of self links up with, um, you know, the story of us and the story of now, right, of course, um, which is a Marshall Gans reference. But I think all the ways that you think deeply about how communities need to be deeply embedded um, in this process of storytelling and not just an add-on at the end, I think there's so much um, that, uh, that your work brings to that. Um, well, with that, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time for today. Um, but, um, and I want to thank you so much, Seth, for being with us. Um, I also thank you so much for having me. To, of course. Um, I think, um, would love for you to actually, uh, help us with today's shout out because I think, you know, based on our theme for today, um, I think it would be so great if we could, um, share with our um, listeners about uh, a video that you made actually for the California Immigrant Policy Center, and it's a you know a pretty um, timely call to action um, that folks can get involved with, um, and and maybe sort of uh, also touch upon um, you know what folks can do in their own communities as well. So um, if you could give us your sort of call to action based on that film, that would be great. Yes, in 10 seconds. Um, uh, currently, you know, one of the attacks that the Trump administration is doing against immigrants is through this um, public charge rule, um, which pretty much means that uh, um, immigrants uh, would be um, who use um, certain services, you know, and, and benefits that they are eligible for, um, like um, housing and medical um, services, you know, and also um, uh, food. When they use those uh, programs that they're eligible for, um, what the Trump administration is trying to do is count it against immigrants so that, you know, it, it could potentially prevent them from being able to adjust their status. Um, so right now there's a call to action to get folks to stop this from happening um, by making a public comment um, and the way that people can do that is by going to the website of California Immigrant Policy Center, caimmigrant.org, to be able to learn more about the public charge rule and what you can do about it. And make a public comment um, by December 10th, which is up and coming. And just in general, you know, I really encourage folks to engage locally. I think we see a lot of things in the news that are happening nationally. We feel so distant from it. You know, we feel so small in relation to the problems that are that are um, that we are facing. Um, and how can we get engaged locally um, and, you know, within our own communities, you know, and really d dive deep into work, how sm however small it is, you know, but as long as it's really deep and really engaged in that work, I think that's really how we can um, collaborate with other folks and find ways to bring our energies together and our power as a community into one organizing effort. Yes. Thank you so much, Seth. Um, I just want to echo that how important it is to get involved locally. Um, there are, in a lot of even small towns, 
uh, folks who are organizing that you can connect with. And one really simple way to get involved is to find out if there is a legal fund or a bond fund for folks in your own community, um, and it will help them get the representation they need and the support that they need so they're not separated from their family, so that they're not stuck in detention, and they can actually be assisted through the asylum process. Um, so definitely please check out Seth's video um, and see what it is that you can to do um, in these times. Um, so thanks again, Seth. Uh, thank you for being with us today. You're listening. This has been a show of Bad Feminists Making Films on Full Service Radio, brought to you by Riza and Ethnocene Collective.